We've dealt with a repetitive and short life. We've dealt with death. And last week we approached the subjects of time and beauty in the hands of a loving God. We've seen that there are many difficult pieces to swallow when it comes to Ecclesiastes. But a number of you have told me, as we have gone through this book, that, yeah, they may be difficult, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, but that doesn't make them any less true or any less worthwhile for our faith. Not to say I completely agree, it's a very encouraging thing to hear people appreciating Ecclesiastes. And so for truth and for the benefit of our faith, we come to another difficult section. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 are some of the darkest pieces of writing in the entire Bible. Those who are dead are better off than those who are still living under the sun. And it is even better for those who have not even been. That's the language of a person who would probably be placed in a hospital because they are a danger to themselves and a danger to others. Last week was so uplifting. God makes everything beautiful and it's time. Can't we just move onward, maybe a little upward? Let go of all these dark and difficult matters? Our preacher tells us, no, absolutely not. Why? Because this is life. We find beauty one week and we are in a pit of despair the next week. Our emotion, our faith, our hopes and dreams, they can seem stable, they can seem strong one week and then be as far away from us as the stars as the next week. Our life under the sun is difficult, but it is still the life God has given us. So, how has our preacher got into this state? How has he shifted so quickly? What reflection from this life under the sun led him into such despair? One word, justice. Justice under the sun is where our attention will lie this morning. It will not be an easy morning because justice is one of the most discussed topics of our day. Emotions run high with the application of justice, so I will do my best to be very careful with my words. I will only ask one thing of all of you, something that's been seeming to be lacking in our world today. Show me a little grace. Uh, If I fail to fit your particular standard of justice, Talk to me about it. I'm sure we can find common ground if I fail to touch on a specific application of justice that you hold near and dear to your heart. Talk to me about it. And I say, understand, I only have so much time before all of us are starting to look at our watch and going, when is it lunchtime? I appreciate the grace in advance. So, let's find out what our preacher has to say about justice under the sun. We know our preacher is observant, he's wise, he has experienced as much as any man could experience in his life, so he looks around at all he has seen and done, and he tells us that justice under the sun isn't justice at all. Rather, it's injustice. And he sees how people treat one another, and he doesn't see humanity, he sees inhumanity. But there is a wink. There's a wink in our passage. A question. A question posed by the preacher that points us to something deeper. It points us to the incarnation. Where justice is finally found, but not for us. 
Those are our three points for this morning. Injustice, inhumanity, and incarnation. So, what does justice look like under the sun? The preacher is quite clear in verse 16 as we started. I saw in the place of justice there was wickedness. There's no justice found under the sun, only injustice. Look further down, chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. To give a very basic understanding of justice, although I think that the preacher is not trying to describe justice, rather make us feel what injustice is, I will say, according to the preacher, justice is founded in God. Now, there are many applications that we can talk about. There are many ideas, things about equity, things about power, things about community and personal responsibility. Those are all wrapped up, and there's a large group there that can be found within the Bible. We can turn to different prophets in Isaiah and and in Jeremiah. We can go back to Deuteronomy. We're going to touch on some of that, but I'm not giving you a specific definition of justice because our preacher is not giving us a specific justice definition. He is rather presuming that you know. You know what justice is. You see it. It comes out to you. When something stands out, it goes, wow, that is not just. And so he doesn't even give examples of the injustice in the world. He just says, you know. But it doesn't take a biblical scholar to point out times in scripture where injustice reigns supreme. I'll give you a few examples, right? King David, Ruling all over Israel, in his rule, he sees a woman who's not his wife. He takes her into his bedroom, treats her as his wife. The woman has a husband who fights to protect David and all of Israel. David has him put on the front lines to die, so his sin was not found out. The husband dies not knowing that his wife was taken by the king. The husband died without seeing justice for the wrong that was committed against him. That's injustice. Deuteronomy 25, if you've never read Deuteronomy, it's quite a book, lots of laws pertaining to worship, civil matters. Under the heading of miscellaneous laws, which you know is very riveting, there is a law that describes how to fairly and justly weigh out items for selling. The verses describe two bags of different weight being used to trick the customer and cause them to pay more for the item seems even amongst the people of God, there's a need to prevent cheating and injustice in civil matters. One last example. We all know the famous law, an eye for an eye. It's in technical terms called the Hammurabi's Code because it was founded there. It is a law of retaliation, often dealing with physical harm to one party. If someone takes out the eye of one person, they have the right and justice calls for them to take out the eye of the offender. In many ways, our laws of justice have been founded on this code. Enter Lamech, Genesis 4. The son of Methuselah, oldest man in the Bible. Lamech did a few things different from the rest of the line of Adam. For the very first thing, the way they introduce him, Lamech, son of Methuselah, he took two wives. Not a good start. Then he takes his two wives and he says, Hey, I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. Lamech is not exactly in the mood for justice. He's in the mood for vengeance. He doesn't think the eye for eye is a good thing. He thinks, no, I'm going to push it harder. You hurt me, I'm going to kill you. That's not justice. It's not equity. 
The story of Lamech is the first step towards the judgment of God on the people of earth in the story of Noah. If you see it, as soon as Lamech is introduced, it starts going real downhill, quick. But this is great, and I love it, because this is just even a side note about the Bible and about God. Lamech is listed in the lineage of Christ, according to Luke. You read Luke 3, there he is, the guy who took that first step. Took two wives, decided to start killing people for just wounding him. He's in the lineage of Christ. Outstanding. Bible's crazy. Here's what I gotta say. You may think that's great, the Bible's full of terrible people, great injustice is constantly running throughout. Humanity has gotten more sophisticated. We have more appreciation for what justice is, we have more descriptions of it. We've grown. Injustice is rampant in our modern world, it's everywhere. We look around and we are confronted with the weak and the powerless being trampled. We are right there with our preacher. The strong and the powerful stand on the backs of the weak. Those with money and power move to only grow their money and their power. Even if they give up power, it's just to gain more money. Or if they decide to give away their money, it's to gain more power. In our modern world, we deal with unjust treatment. The abuse of power is often associated with different characteristics within ourselves. Age, sex, color of skin, obvious examples standing out there. So, a job. A job may not hire a person because they are too young or appear to lack maturity. Or you're too old and the person hiring someone wants a younger, more driven person. We presume age means wisdom and youth means foolishness. That's just our culture. Odd thing is the church is full of this kind of age problem. Maybe this is too much in my wheelhouse and not necessarily in yours, but a pastor who is too young and inexperienced is often said, you can't pastor a church. So he gets ignored in the hiring process. A pastor who's too old, 55 plus, well, he's too old to step into the, retire- into the church, so he should just kind of drift off into retirement. Be ignored in the hiring process. Even Timothy, Paul's protege, explained, experienced this kind of treatment. Paul had to tell Timothy, hey, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. That's the first century. It's been 2,000 years, and we're still dealing with it in the church. Unjust treatment. Just because of age. When it comes to being male and female, we see injustice all the time. Jobs attract particular sexes, and then the other sex is ignored. Women are often ignored for engineering jobs, technological jobs. We're trying to see it push a certain direction, which oftentimes pushes a more sexist approach towards life, which makes no sense to me. In the higher realm of business, women are passed over for the promotions because they are just waiting to have a family and then leave the business. So they'll be ignored. Men, men are ignored for nursing and teaching jobs. If a man wants to teach elementary school children... It's often thought of as being unambitious, and that's nice. The worst one is to be say, I don't know if I trust that man with young kids, which has all kinds of subtexts. The color of skin is a very important topic, too, to talk about injustice. And if I'm honest, in many ways I feel inadequate to speak to the full injustice found in our modern day. And this may get uncomfortable, and I'm going to go for it. Just be ready. A young woman who is laying in bed peaceably was shot and killed by police who were searching for someone else. 
That should not happen. That's not right. It's not just. You may argue, okay, her boyfriend shot first. She, didn't, she shouldn't have been associating with such unsavory characters. I'm going to say no. A person should not be shot and killed for no reason. That's an unjust act, just as an outright. George Floyd, he was not a great man. I think he would be quick to say that. He had many struggles in life. He did things that deserved punishment according to the law. And I agree with that, and I think that he would as well. But he should not be killed because of small offenses. The punishment does not equal the crime. That's an unjust act. And even if he did, say, strike a police officer at that point, he should still not be killed on the streets. Why? Because then we're turning into Lamech. You wounded me, I will kill you. That's not a just act. It's vengeance. It's anger. If you think racial injustice is gone in this world, I will say you're sorely mistaken. Civil rights movement in America was less than 60 years ago. There are people still alive who were around during it, who still marched during it. And though laws change, emotions and minds do not change quickly. Do any of you know when the, uh, what, what year apartheid was removed in South Africa? 1991. That was when it was first introduced. It wasn't fully ratified by the smaller government bodies until 1994. This is telling you my age. 1991, I was four. I was four when apartheid was repealed. Racial injustice is still around us. We still see people treated worse because of the color of their skin or where they grew up. A recent study was released by Walk Free Foundation. It's a group that studies slavery in the world. They said there's still 40 million slaves, slaves in this world. Here's one that's interesting. In the news within the last year, may not have seen it, Harvard was just punished for unfairly denying Asian and white students from their undergrad program. Names and racial background, which for some reason was on the application process, had to be removed because those who were reading it had racial bias. Unjust, unfair treatment. The world is full of injustice, and our preacher sees it. He knows it. We see it. We know it's there. So he tries to calm his rage is the best way to answer what happens in verse 17. He tries to cool his anger at all the injustice he sees around. What does he do? He says, in my heart, God will deal with them. I may not be able to bring about justice. I may not be able to do it. But God, in his time, will make this world beautiful. That still doesn't mean things are great. That's a long-term view. The long-term and everything, it will work out. That sounds great. But right here, right now, the families who lost their jobs because they were too old or too young. Because they, the wife got pregnant without telling HR. Because they were black or because they were white. The long-term view doesn't calm the anger right here, right now. I've told this to many of you before. You don't approach the homeless and tell them, if they believe in Jesus Christ, they'll get a great house with many rooms once they get into heaven. You don't do that. That's not how you talk to people who are homeless. 
You don't approach a hungry person and say, well, Jesus will give you the bread of life. And then walk away. You give them a home. You give them bread so their first needs are met and then show how their deeper spiritual needs can be met in Jesus Christ. The same is true for a world of injustice. You can try and tell people that God will bring justice in his time. But that's a sad and empty answer often for people. They don't want that. People who are suffering right now are struggling. And this is why our preacher isn't convinced, even by what he says in his heart. He isn't satisfied by God making everything beautiful in its time. It's why all of you are here right now. The beauty that was there last week, seven days ago, it's grown empty and hollow. We need to be reminded. So our preacher looks past the injustice. He tries to find a reason. He's like, okay, if, if, if God's going to do it in his time, I need something more. I need reasons. I need justice in my mind to at least tell me why this is happening. And so he looks to the children of men. He says, what are they? They're beasts. Brings us to our second point, inhumanity. We look all around us, all we see is injustice, man treating one another with absolute hate and carelessness. What we see are beasts. We no longer look as though we are made in the image of God because we don't see one another as made in the image of God. And this is what the preacher is doing. In the midst of all the injustice, he sees a reason. He needs it. He needs to know why, so he comes up with one. God is trying to show all mankind that they are just beasts in sin. That in this sinfulness, they are just succumbing to their lower being. Their unjust acts are nothing more than animals fighting in the wild. Obviously, this preacher does not believe man is just a beast. That seems a bit outlandish. He makes some statements we are about to go through that make... Honestly, no sense for an Israelite, let alone a king, who has said that he believes in God. He sounds more like a deist than any defined religion in this paragraph that we're going through right now. But again, we need to remember where he is at and what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to get into his mind. We need to appreciate what he is thinking. Our preacher is seeing all the unjust unjust acts in his life under the sun. He sees it. It's there in every one of his experiences, reflecting on all the difficulties of this life. When people are confronted with such inhumane and terrible unjust acts, they respond accordingly. They abandon faith. They entertain ideas that they wouldn't normally entertain. They need to find some way to make sense of it, so they speak truth in some ways. Hard truths that often need to be said They're difficult to fully wrap our minds around. One example. Many who walked out of the concentration camps in World War II, their faith was gone. There's a famous saying that was put in a documentary, German documentary back in the 50s or 60s. One of the prison cells, one of the prisoners wrote, carved into the wall, this. If there is a God, he will have to beg for my forgiveness. That is the cry of a person who has suffered immensely, who has seen unjust acts. So our preacher, seeing all the evil in the world, all the injustice, compares man to beasts. You can see the example even in our last hundred years. Again, World War II 
and the concentration camps, the 50s and the 60s were such a large shift philosophically and theologically. We didn't even know what to do with it because people couldn't comprehend that man was that evil. That man was that unjust, that terrible. And so our preacher, like us, can often see man as being beasts. And he says, a beast dies just as a man dies. We all will die and all go to the same place, into the ground, from dust to dust. An animal is born, lives, dies, then decomposes. A man is born, lives, then dies and decomposes. If we treat each other as beasts and look to one another as beasts, then we are nothing more than a beast. One of the great inhumane and unjust acts we see in our world is abortion. That's right, we're going to that one too. The abandonment of a child is at just the beginning of its life. Allow me to be clear in this moment, all right? I care deeply about every woman that has to make this terrible decision. We should be there to care for them. We should be there to help them as best we can. We should love every woman who has thought about doing this and every woman who has actually done this terrible act. But it is still a terrible act. Cannot assign human life to mere grouping of cells. That is treating man like it is a beast. But we can't accept that. We can't accept that viewpoint that man is just a beast. It's untenable because we end up going into dark places. We need to fight against it. We need to make some kind of argument. What makes man different? How are we different from the beasts of the field? I say the spirit. The spirit of man is the Christian answer. Man has a spirit within him. We've been made in the image of God. We're given a spirit that does not die. Our preacher hits us with a one-two punch. Attacks that idea too. All of you who hold to the idea of a spirit who lives on past this life, how do you know what will happen? How do you know that your loved ones will be where they will be when they have died? Are they still existing? We don't know. Our preacher says we don't have tangible means of knowing. Where the spirit is going after death? Is it going into earth? Is it going up above? We have no idea. All we see and experience in this life under the sun is injustice and inhumanity. Man is born, he works, and he dies. If we truly are just beasts, we have much more to be saddened by. A preacher tries to give us some kind of balm. He realizes he's gone too far. He says, rejoice in your work. At least, rejoice in your work. You beasts of the field, as you till the ground, as you pull the carts, rejoice in the work. At least you have some benefit for you. You've done something. Look at the line behind you. It doesn't stop the sadness. It doesn't doesn't stop the pain. Even the preacher doesn't buy into it. Look at verse 2 and 3, again, chapter 4. With all this injustice, with man treating one another as beasts, humanity stripped bare, those who have turned to dust are better than those who must endure this hardship. He's looking at the grave going, that's better. That's better than this right now. And even more, those who have never felt this hardship, those who have never been, they are better off by far. Oh, that's where our preacher leaves it. (laughs) He leaves it there. Those who have never been are better off by far. 
You look to verse 4, it's obvious change in topic. He goes into toiling and working and other things. So what can we do with this? Can we find a ladder to climb out of the hole? I think so. I do. I think that there is a ladder there. It's hard to see. So on very rare occasions throughout the Bible, there are moments. Moments when the author of a book is writing his thoughts and a line comes out of his pen that seems different. It seems odd. It's almost as if he doesn't really know or is unaware of how great this line is. Only after history, the Holy Spirit have given the reader some nudging do we finally see something great. And at the end of chapter 3, the preacher poses a question. That's a question that could be asked in a million different ways. But he asks this question, and I think he means it to be unanswerable. He says, who can bring him to see what will be after him? (laughs) The question is perfect. It points out the feelings that he is having. Because he thinks no one can. We can't know what is coming off, coming after us. We'll never know. We'll never see the fullness of justice. We will die unhappy and unfulfilled. That's where the wink is. That's where the wink of God is. There is someone who can bring us to see what will be after us. That's what brings us to the third point, incarnation. Who can answer the question of our preacher? Who can bring us to see what will be after us? If we find someone like that, then we can find an answer to the injustice and inhumanity in this life. We can see and hear about how things will all come together. If we find that person, justice can be found, humanity will be seen. So who can answer that question? It's the first new thing under the sun, of course. The defeater of the strong man, the man with the most beautiful story ever told, Jesus Christ. There are a lot of loose ends here. A lot of things we have to knit together. But I think it's actually more amazing than we realize. See, I could just say to you, I could just skip to the end and go, okay, look, Jesus showed up in his death and resurrection. We've seen what will be after us. He raised from the dead. That's a great thing. There is going to be a moment of great justice. God came in the flesh. This is great. In his resurrection, he's shown us that all things will be made right. And then I could just leave it at that. We can go, all right, let's move on to our happy way. But that's not the perfect answer to give to the preacher. The perfect answer to give to the preacher is to say, you want to rectify injustice. You want to remove the inhumane treatment of mankind. Your salvation is founded because of injustice. Your humanity is gained because of inhumane treatment. This is how great God is. We see injustice in all this world and we hate it. We want to fix it as best we can. The quote on the front of the bulletin, Bonhoeffer, it's excellent, right? We, we should want to destroy the wheels of injustice, not just help those who feel injust, injustice in their lives. But when Jesus Christ took on the flesh, when God came in the flesh, that's what incarnation means, right? Incarnate, flesh, incarnate. God's answer to the great justices, injustices of the world isn't strict justice being poured out. Though that does happen in God's time. His answer to the injustice our preacher brings up is to experience the injustice with us. When he came in the flesh, it wasn't justice, it was mercy. 
It was love. It was grace. The perfect God of heaven left his throne and took on flesh. He was a child inside of a womb of an unwed mother. He was born into poverty. He spent large portions of his life hated, treated poorly. This is the creator of the heavens and earth doing this. How can we look on God coming in the flesh as being anything but unjust? It's not fair. It's completely unjust. It's inhumane. Because an inhuman came to be a human. It's the creator walking with its creation. It's unfair that God had to come down here. It's unfair that God had to experience all the things that we have to experience. And it's definitely unfair that God had to be put to death for an act he didn't commit. Jesus Christ's life was a life of injustice and inhumanity. This is what I mean by being more amazing than we realize. The incarnation is an act of mercy and love. It's also just a bit unjust. The crucifixion and the forgiveness of sins is the most unjust act ever done. And that is what we want. That is what we need. We need an unjust act, but for our benefit. We need to be the one who doesn't feel unjust against us, but feel mercy and grace. We pursue justice. We need justice. It is something that's not only good for human flourishing, but it's something that is required by God in the Bible. But the forgiveness of all our sins is not a just act. It is a merciful and loving act. It's amazing. The preacher may say the world is full of injustice, injustice and it's terrible. People are inhumane. They know they're nothing more than beasts to one another. But God says, yeah, I'm coming down. I'm going to take on the greatest injustice of all so that you can receive mercy. What a great God we have. A God who takes all injustice from us. Now this doesn't mean that we aren't to pursue justice. The Bible is very clear about God desiring justice in this world, but that's not what this sermon's about. We're not sending us out to go chase down justice. This sermon is about us feeling in an unjust world, and in an inhumane world, and recognizing that in the death of Jesus Christ, we've seen that, and yet it is grace and mercy for us. This is how wonderful God is. We have been forgiven, and our God has experienced the greatest injustice for us. Let's pray.